0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
1: NA, member FDIC. This much is still true. I never liked work. My goal was always to be shiftless.
2: You're listening to Raymond Carver, the poet and writer known as one of the great short story writers of the 20th century. He's reading a poem in Albany, New York, for the New York State Writers' Institute in 1987.
1: I like the idea of sitting in a chair in front of your house for hours, doing nothing but wearing a hat and drinking cola. What's wrong with that?
2: I'm Adam Coleman, and before we listen to more Raymond Carver, let me welcome you to the Writers' Institute. This is a sonic version of the New York State Writers' Institute. The Writers' Institute was established in 1983 by the novelist William Kennedy, author of books like Ironweed and Roscoe, and you're going to hear from him in these shows. Among other things, it brings writers together with the public. It's based in New York's capital city, Albany, which is also where I'm from. At some point in high school, a teacher strongly encouraged us to attend some of the Writers Institute's events, and I did. We'd go at night to the university campus, where events were, and I'd sit in the back and think stuff over. I heard a lot of incredible people. It turned out to be kind of a big deal for me. Because something I believe happens when you hear writers, when you listen to people who have given all their thought to language. So that's what we're going to do in this show. In this episode, for instance, I'm going to talk to the National Book Award winning novelist Susan Choi and William Kennedy, the Pulitzer winning founder of the Writers' Institute. But you'll also hear archival audio from short story writers and poets Grace Paley and Raymond Carver. Across the whole thing, you're going to hear about a kind of friendly attention to the world, a kind of thoughtfulness. Let's get started with Raymond Carver. There is something like the opposite of work that interests him.
1: The shiftless. The people who were better than us were comfortable. They lived in painted houses with flush toilets. Drove cars whose year and make were recognizable. The ones worse off were sorry and didn't work. Their strange cars sat on blocks in dusty yards. The years go by and everything and everyone gets replaced. But this much is still true. I never liked work. My goal was always to be shiftless. I saw the merit in that. I liked the idea of sitting in a chair in front of your house for hours, doing nothing but wearing a hat and drinking cola. What's wrong with that? Drawing on a cigarette from time to time. Spitting. Making things out of wood with a knife. Where's the harm there? Now and then calling the dogs to hunt rabbits. Try it sometime. Once in a while hailing a fat, blonde kid like me and saying, don't I know you?
2: Not, what are you going to be when you grow up? I played that Raymond Carver poem for the novelist Susan Choi, author of books like Trust Exercise and My Education, and I asked her if that kind of shiftlessness defines the work of the writer in general.
0: When the speaker in the poem says, I always wanted to be shiftless, are you assuming that Raymond Carver, that speaker, says like, and I succeeded. Look at me here, like reading this, reading this poem to you and actually like possibly being paid.
2: Yes, this is a a triumphant (laughs) moment. Like, look what I've done with my shiftlessness.
0: I definitely at times feel like I've gotten away with something and I can't believe I got away with it, you know, with great joy and also a certain amount of apprehension. I mean, it does, it does seem like it's too good to be true sometimes that it's possible to be taken seriously as a professional for doing something that, you know, I started doing when I was like six or seven years old, because it seemed like the most fun thing I could think of was to like, take my mom's typewriter away from her and like, write weird little stories about mice or whatever it might be. And then, you know, it's like how, however many decades later being kind of granted this like professional and social stature for continuing to do some version of that. Um, so that, that does feel a little bit like getting away with something, but like, it's definitely, I definitely wouldn't say, oh, that means that it turned out that being a writer was like really easy.
2: How do you describe the difficulties?
0: By drawing back the veil on how much writing I do that no one ever sees. And that's just bad. How many thousands and thousands of page equivalents of bad writing I've created at no small effort.
2: You hang out with writers. You talk to people who spend a lot of time in these alternate worlds. What is that like when writers return to the world beyond the alternate world?
0: One thing I'll say, because I noticed the absence of it so often in other social situations, the writers that I you know, that I have like the the great pleasure of interacting with regularly or even that I just, you know, meet briefly. Um, One thing I really like about writers is writers are really curious about other people. (laughs) And, you know, maybe that's self-serving because that's what we do is we pay attention to things and then try to address them in our work. But I'm constantly amazed by how often I meet people who have no curiosity at all about anything. It's like really disturbing to me, actually. And I, I do think it's like a some sort of social or cultural symptom of what we're going through right now is, is people maybe are still curious, but they have forgotten how to express curiosity to other people. I really like hanging out with writers because like they pay attention to other people, even if they've been in solitude all day and they're kind of forgetting how to have a conversation. Most writers that I've encountered on some deep level, even if like, you know, they're not maybe making sparkling conversation every second. They're like engaged with other people. They're watching and listening and curious about their fellow humans, which is like a weirdly rare trait these days, <laughs> I find. For all their maybe reputations as as like curmudgeonly hermits who crave solitude. Like I don't think it's true at all. I think writers, we may be the last <laughs> the last people on earth who really still feel like we need other people, or at least I do.
2: We'll come back to Susan Choi, and now to the author of Iron Weed. William Kennedy is a Joycean Faulknerian writer exploring place, specifically his and my hometown of Albany, New York, where he was born in 1928. And as the founder of an institute of writers, he knows a lot about the social life of people whose work seems especially solitary.
3: There's no doubt about the fact that you writing is is a solitudinous job. You can't write without the solitude. There's no way. But the congregation of writers, I mean, Hemingway used to say the New York writers were all like flies in a bottle or something. But at the same time, he was the most gregarious of writers. I mean, he was hanging out with you know, Joyce and Ford Manix Ford and John Los Passos and Scott Fitzgerald and writers are a great company. And they love to talk and they love to party. You know, most of them. <laughs> and when, when a writer does come, and that's, that's exactly what happens. I mean, we always try to have a dinner party now and, <laughs> and usually there's, a, there's, a, there's an after party of some sort.
2: You'll hear more about the ongoing party in this series. William Kennedy, for instance, has a ton of stories about just plain enjoyment.
3: You know, and Joe Heller, nobody could ever see Joe Heller. People used to go you know, miles, 100 miles, 200 miles to see Joe come out and do a reading if somewhere he came up and uh, well, we had a great time with him. I, I had reviewed one of his books, Something Happened, which I loved. I loved it more than I loved uh, Catch-22, even though that's a, a superlative book. We said, well, we could have a dinner before the reading, or we could have well, have a dinner after your reading. Now, which would you like? He said, I'd like both. So, <laughs> so we had dinner before, and then we went out in the restaurant and had dinner afterwards.
2: Back now to Raymond Carver and sticking on the subject of writers having a good time with their friends
1: my boat my boat is being made to order right now it's about to leave the hands of its builders i've reserved a special place for it down at the marina it's going to have plenty of room on it for all my friends richard bill chuck toby jim hayden gary george harold don dick scott jeffrey jack Paul, Jay, Morris, and Alfredo. All my friends, they know who they are. <laughs> Tess, of course, I wouldn't go any place without her. And Christina, Mary, Catherine, Diane, Sally, Onik, Pat, Judith, Susie, Lynn, Cindy, Jean, Mona, Doug and Amy, they're family, but they're also my friends, and they like a good time. There's room in my boat for just about everyone. I'm serious about this. There'll be a place on board for everyone's stories, my own, but also the ones belonging to my friends. Short stories, and the ones that go on and on, the true and the made up, the ones already finished, and the ones still being written. Poems too, lyric poems, and the longer, darker narratives. For my painter friends, paints and canvases will be on board my, my boat. We'll have fried chicken, lunch meats, cheeses, rolls, french bread. Every good thing that my friends and I like. And a big basket of fruit, in case anyone wants fruit. In case anyone wants to say he or she ate an apple or some grapes on my boat. Whatever my friends want, name it and it'll be there. Soda pop of all kinds. Beer and wine, sure. No one will be denied anything on my boat. We'll go out into the sunny harbor and have fun, that's the idea. Just have a good time all around, not thinking about this or that, or getting ahead or falling behind. Fishing poles, if anyone wants to fish. The fish are out there. We may even go a little way down the coast on my boat, but nothing dangerous, nothing too serious. The idea is simply to enjoy ourselves and not get scared. We'll eat and drink and laugh a lot on my boat. I've always wanted to take at least one trip like this with my friends on my boat. If we want to, we'll listen to Schumann on the CBC. But if that doesn't work out, okay, we'll switch to KRAB, The Who, and The Rolling Stones. Whatever makes my friends happy. Maybe everyone will have their own radio on my boat. In any case, we're going to have a big time. People are going to have fun and do what they want to do on my boat.
2: Next up, how the writer Grace Paley's work connected with others. You're here again with me, Adam Coleman, and the New York State Writers Institute. Grace Paley's collected stories are masterpieces animated by a kind of voice that you're about to hear in her archival sound from the 1980s when she was given an award. She was introduced by Governor Mario Cuomo and also William Kennedy, who talked about her attentiveness to language and also her rebelliousness.
3: She recalled that her career as a storyteller began by, li- by being a listener. Quote, when I was little, I loved to listen to my parents' stories, all the talk that went on. I loved to listen, and soon I loved to talk and tell. Unquote. She lost interest in school in the sixth grade. <laughs> even, even so, she graduated from high school and entered Hunter College at the age of 15. She then immediately lost interest in college and was expelled for absenteeism. Even so, she went on to New York University in which she lost interest (laughs) and decided not to stick around for a degree.
2: Grace Paley's writing calls on a different kind of attention from what you'll often find in universities. She describes here writing that isn't anti-intellectual, but it draws from a mindset different from a lot of intellectual work.
4: I want to particularly also thank the political movements that I've been involved with. We often think that we're working for those movements. I don't think we have time to think how often those uh, historical currents, what they do for us, I don't think I would have written really without the influence of those movements. Sometimes, you know, I didn't even know they existed. I mean, just because you're going to thank a movement doesn't mean you knew about it to begin with, you know? I mean, I, I wrote an awful lot about women before I thought of myself as a feminist. And then when I finally finished my first book, I said, oh, I guess I'm a feminist.
2: You can hear Paley's commitment to collectives.
4: I often think of the people who, um, who don't have that kind of either family encouragement or uh, uh, neighborhood encouragement or cultural encouragement, and who really have all those poems in them and all those songs that they want to do something with. That is, put them out there and tell them to other people. I thank the Writers Institute and the state for this award. It was a great surprise to me and a great pleasure when I found out who was in charge of awarding it to me some people over there, and, um, and the only nicer thing maybe for me would be like if I got an award from my block. <laughs> and, <laughs> and those are two possible places, either 11th Street in Manhattan, or else my Bronx block between 172nd Street and 173rd Street, which unfortunately is no longer there. Thank you. <laughs>
2: When Grace Bailey talks about her writing, there's more to hear about getting beyond self, so that a writer can get into conversation more with others.
4: Most often when you write, you're really really sitting there and you're just thinking about what's eating you up alive, so to speak. I mean, you're trying to clear your head. You're trying to get beyond your own, um, I I won't say your own, not your personal suffering, but your own worries and agitations about, about the world or about your relationships or whatever, and you're trying to do that. And then when, when something happens and it turns out that you're talking about something that, that really concerns lots of other people, it's a great joy. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to happen.
2: I played that most recent Grace Paley sound, the last 40 seconds or so, for Susan Choi.
0: Wow. Um, it was so moving to hear her voice. I've I've never heard her voice and I love her. And uh, I'm like almost in tears. (laughs) Like she sounds so young. I was enraptured just now for 40 seconds listening to her. And at the same time, I'm realizing that I'm not sure if what she's talking about is this experience of kind of being lifted out of yourself while you're writing and having a conscious experience of, oh, this isn't just about me and my sufferings or my concerns this this is something that is going to touch other people i I mean is it is it your impression that that's what she's saying is that that's kind of like a a feeling that she would even get while working
2: yeah and it's in the context of this kind of bigger talk she's giving about the way her politics ideas about collective social movements connect to her personal work and her and her art
0: you know and, and i'm thinking now of this really extraordinary essay of hers that I love called 6 days which is feels like such a great enactment of that idea she's thrown in jail for participating in a Vietnam war protest and it's when the women's jail was in lower manhattan like right across the street from where citarella is now you know like right right down by the west 4th street subway station and she talks about being in that jail with all these women and their families coming and having like shouted conversations back and forth between the sidewalk and and the jail, and it's a really personal account, but it's uh, it's the point is that she's so embedded in this larger community of women and this like larger entanglement of issues and problems and struggles and it's it's just a magnificent piece of writing and so does so many things and I, I wish. On the one hand, that I could say that while I'm writing about, like, you know, she puts it like like my personal sufferings or worries or concerns or however she put it. Like, while I'm kind of, like, in this little private cauldron of my own bubbling stew of worries, that I had moments of understanding that I had somehow, like, by going inside myself, moved outside of myself and connected to others. But I never know if I ever do, that that's happening with something I've written until much later after it's done. I never know that. I'm always really surprised by what ends up really speaking to people. And some of the things that I've written that I thought were like the least applicable to anyone on earth have turned out to somehow be the most potent for readers. It's kind of this weird inside out conundrum that I've gotten to rely on in a way where I think like, well, if I can just kind of try to be true to what I'm worried about or what I'm not even worried about, but like whatever the mystery is that I'm trying to solve here, if I can just like not think, will people like this? Will they relate to it? Will readers, you know, draw something from like, if I can not think about readers, it ends up being work that readers get a lot more out of. For me being super specific has always helped me be broad. But I've never felt as she did as I was writing something, oh, this is going to this is going to go broad. This is going to this is going to connect me and this work to others. I never have that certainty ever.
2: When do you realize like oh this is this is emanating in the world in ways in which I I didn't think before?
0: When people start reacting. I I actually try not to read reviews. As much as possible. So I don't mean when critics react. I mean when people react. <laughs> I don't mean critics aren't people. I, what I mean is, you know, when people who like it's not their job to read something I wrote, it could take years sometimes to have that sift back and and realize that this thing that I wrote because I was really particularly obsessed with like this one thing, for whatever reason, it it was meaningful to a lot of other people.
2: This next clip is. Is Raymond Carver reading another short poem? He's focusing on sort of details, and it finally leads to ecstatic recognition of something beyond that narrow focus. But he gets there by first really attending to that focus.
1: Mm-hmm. Balsawood, my dad is at the stove in front of a pan with brains and eggs. But who has any appetite this morning? I feel flimsy as balsawood. Something has just been said. My mom said it. What was it? Something, I'll bet, that bears on money. I'll do my part if I don't eat. Dad turns his back on the stove. I'm in a hole. Don't dig me deeper. Light leaks in from the window. Someone's crying. The last thing I recall is the smell of burned brains and eggs. The whole morning is shoveled into the garbage and mixed with other things. Sometime later, he and I drive to the dump 10 miles out. We don't talk. We throw our bags and cartons onto a dark mound. Rats screech. They whistle as they crawl out of rotten sacks, dragging their bellies. We get back in the car to watch the smoke and fire. The motor's running. I smell the airplane glue on my fingers. He looks at me as I bring my fingers to my nose, then looks away again toward town. He wants to say something can't he's a million miles away we're both far away from there and still someone's crying even then i was beginning to understand how it's possible to be in one place and someplace else too
2: so there there's this kind of accumulation of detail that leads to this almost scattered or expanded and maybe heartbroken consciousness but some kind of bigger consciousness comes about from accumulating or experiencing the sequence of details. Mm-hmm. When do you sense details and selection of details leading to some kind of liftoff, some kind of drama or something beyond the details?
0: It's such a great question, and I'm, I'm still sort of deep in the poem and thinking about that liftoff, as you put it. It's such a nice word for a poem that, towards the end, tells you that this boy has been building a model airplane, right, without actually giving you that image because he has the glue on his fingers like at risk of just continuing to sound like the most heedless and like lacking in self-knowledge of writers I I think that that consciousness is really intuitive for me I often don't know why a detail works but I can feel that it does. I can feel it works. I don't know why. I couldn't explain to you why. If this, if this was my poem, you know, I wish it was. Like, I couldn't have explained to you why the the brains and eggs is the is the right breakfast to go to waste because this child feels that he shouldn't eat to help his family. I have this experience quite frequently of having readers ask me questions about details in my work that it, like, never ever occurred to me that the detail functioned as a symbol and then they'll say oh well you know when you included this did you mean that to symbolize this or symbolize that but it's clear that they're they're, they've seized on this detail and they intuit some sort of symbolic structure that the detail the physical detail is the visual manifestation of this symbolic structure of meaning somewhere (laughs) in the writing that's how I find out You know, I don't ever consciously include something because I think, oh, this will make a great symbol. I mean, there may be writers who work that way. I'm not one of them. And I sort of suspect that it's much less common than uncommon. I teach a story by my friend and colleague, Michael Cunningham, which is one of my favorite, favorite stories ever written by anyone, called White Angel. I've taught it for years. And it has... It has airplanes in it, actually, which is one of the reasons it just popped into my mind. And it has, you know, someone building something out of wood, someone building something from a kit with wood and wood glue. There's so many details in that story that resonate so powerfully with the emotional undercurrents. And, and you know, one of them is this character is building a grandfather clock from a kit and someone dies in the story. You have this image of this character building this grandfather clock which, you know, is like a rectangular wooden box. How are you going to build that, but like on sawhorses? So it's going to be lying flat. Like this is not said in the story, but you know, any thinking reader is going to be like, well, if you're building grandfather clock from a kit, it's probably like lying down while you're building it because you don't stand it up until you're done. So it's going to be lying down like a coffin, you know, year after year, because I have brilliant students who are great readers. Everyone notices the resonance between this grandfather clock kit and the death that takes place. And the implication of a coffin and there's even a scene at the end of the story when you know this character has died and the grandfather clock has now kind of taken its place in the hallway it's standing up you know chiming the hours and counting off the minutes of loss after this death has taken place and that that's just one of like a bristling cluster of great beautiful but very understated symbols that operate throughout this story and after like the 25th class in which my students, you know, marveled over how beautifully this worked. I finally thought and, and asked me, they would always say to me, did Michael Cunningham do this on purpose? And I never knew. And finally, because I have the privilege and joy of knowing Michael, I asked him and he said, Oh, I never, I never thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, and it was, it was so great because I was like, So it's not just me. Um, I think that this is the incredible mystery and gift of writing when it's going well. It's like, I put things in my writing that work on a symbolic level and I'm not consciously aware of it. I don't scheme them out. And I think if you do try to scheme them out, I feel like it, I I don't, I don't know how to do it, but I, I have this intuition that if you did, it wouldn't work. I don't know why. (laughs) I just don't think it would work. I think I don't think Raymond Carver like sat over that poem thinking I'm going to have the breakfast thrown away and I'm going to say the whole morning got shoveled into the trash. And, you know, this is a great metaphor for like the breakfast is the morning. It's just like that's kind of all those ideas sort of come together in whatever weird chamber of consciousness this stuff happens as you stick stuff onto a page and sort of see how it looks. So I guess that's a very long answer to your question. But, you know, ultimately I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, I choose details because they sound good to me. And in revision, often a detail will not seem great anymore when I take it out. And I have a feeling it's because it's not doing anything. And the ones that seem good and then they continue to seem good, I think they continue to seem good because they're doing something.
2: And to break again, we'll come back to Susan Choi soon. Consider some details in another Raymond Carver poem. Consider how they build a mood and idea at the same time. And consider the kind of attention at work here.
1: The mail. On my desk, a picture postcard from my son in southern France. The Midi, he calls it. Blue skies. Beautiful houses loaded with begonias. Nevertheless, he's going under, needs money fast. Next to his card, a letter from my daughter telling me her old man, the speed freak, is tearing down a motorcycle in the living room. They're existing on oatmeal, she and her children. For God's sake, she could use some help. And there's the letter from my mother, who is sick and losing her mind. She tells me she won't be here much longer. Won't I help her make this one last move? Can I pay for her to have a home of her own? I go outside thinking to walk to the graveyard for some comfort. But the sky is in turmoil. The clouds, huge and swollen with darkness, about to spew open. It's then the postman turns into the drive. His face is a reptile's, glistening and working. His hand goes back as if to strike. It's the mail.
2: One of the things I find, not just listening to Writers' Institute archival sound, but reading the books of the authors in the archives, is an array of textures. That brings to mind something else I found in the archives. I didn't get around to playing this for Susan Choi, but let me play it here. It's an author you'll hear more in another episode. Jamaica Kincaid.
0: The curtains at my windows had loud, showy flowers printed on them. I had chosen this pattern over a calico that the lady in the cloth store had recommended. It did look vulgar in this climate, but it would have been just right in the climate I came from. Through the curtains, I could see that the day was just like the one before, gray, the sky shut up tight, the sun locked out. I knew then that even though I would always notice the absence or presence of the sun, even though I would always prefer a sunny day to a day without sun, I would get used to it. I wouldn't make an important decision based on the weather.
2: That was Jamaica Kincaid reading from her novel, Lucy. Next up, more from William Kennedy, Grace Paley, and Susan Choi. I'm Adam Coleman, and you're visiting the New York State Writers Institute with me. Here's more from the institute's founder, the novelist William Kennedy, on his own adventure into language.
3: I, I came back to Albany. Uh, my father got sick, and, and one thing and another. And I, I took a part-time job at the, my old job at, at, at the newspaper in Albany. Then I, I I was looking constantly for something to write about, and I I was in that intense learning process where you, you want to... I remember reading Thomas Wolfe. He wanted to read all the books in the Harvard Library, and I felt the same way. And I I would have 35 books out or something like that. You're only supposed to take six at a time, but I'd take six at a time, six times in, in a row. And I have 35 books out, but I don't try to read them all. Of course, I couldn't. But it was that intense desire to, to learn about everybody's writing and reading all the great books that you learned about. And I was also, as a, a freelance now, I was, I was looking around, and one way I thought of getting some stories was uh, to write about writers and review books. The paper I was working for, uh, you know, set, kept sending me books. But then I I just would also intersperse that with interviews with writers and Bernard Malamud, whose work I loved. I interviewed him and I had a great conversation. And then of course if I, I would pick his brain on writing, and I would that would be part of the story, uh, how writers write. And I was very much taken with with the way uh, Paris Review was. Um, I uh, started to read it in Puerto Rico, and when the Hemingway piece came out, I was subscribed, and I, I was really very taken with that format. And I tried to do that in some of the uh, pieces I wrote. I was getting uh, first-hand information.
2: Some of the first-hand information became a writer's workshop for Kennedy, including in his interactions with Saul Bellow.
3: Bellow was... Very tough on me, and he said I was repeating everything. I was um, imprecise in my language. My sentences were fatty and clotty. <laughs> it was a hopeless case, it seemed. When I came back to him, you know, a couple of weeks after I edited them down and rewrote them, uh, there was uh, it was not clotty. He thought they were great that was a, a learning experience and I'm I, to this day I, I edit myself very very ruthlessly and uh, I never read a sentence uh, a second time without somehow trying to streamline it or edit it or eliminate it if not if it's not necessary you know I'm sort of a in a way uh, I mean the novels are abundant and uh, an event and Character analysis and so on, but but they're also kind of bare bones uh, writing in a certain sense. I mean, I'm I'm also trying to use the best language uh, at my disposal. Uh, I was very impressed with Bellow's language, and I was I was impressed with Baldwin's uh, the intensity that he could uh, now inal- analyze himself. Uh, it was like that with everybody i mean the dialogue of uh, bernard malemude in 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 his novels and his short stories it was singular it was they were so funny and they were so on the money he, he got to the point in, instantly i wanted to do that I, I was different from every one of them you know uh, i mean cheever i was so i was so impressed with his language I thought those short stories, that collection of short stories of his, was was a was a miracle of a book, and uh, I loved the way he he put together a sentence. I was always trying to establish a style. I knew that Hemingway had a had a great style of writing, and I knew you know I was deeply involved with Faulkner and his the intensity of his language is. And *Sound and Fury*, a book that I read for over and over again, for and, and and Joyce, of course, and Damon Runyon as well. I mean, all these voices that you hear as the story is being told, and they're they're in a particular way. And I was I was looking for a style that would somehow uh, identify me. I couldn't find it. I, I I was writing, but I couldn't find it. Graham Greene, I loved Graham Greene's novels. I couldn't quite figure out his style. He didn't have a style that was that leaped at you and said, oh, hi, I'm a style. It was something else, and, and what I came to eventually was the, that I couldn't possibly invent a style that would be anything other than imitative. I just decided, to write whatever came naturally and just edit the hell out of it. What was left would be my style.
2: It's amazing to me that editing the hell out of something really can bring you to something idiosyncratic and you. Editing doesn't necessarily mean eliminating the things that make it your own. It can mean eliminating everything but the essentials or all the clichés and noise that you absorb daily that inevitably make their way into your own expression. It's nice to clean that stuff out, but it's a complicated process. There's a push and pull between whatever's in your head and everything outside of your head. Here's Susan Choi again, on the way the writing process absorbs a writer while unsettling a writer.
0: If I'm writing, I'm always, you know, at least in the moment of writing, really engaged. I'm never thinking like, oh God, You know, I can't believe I'm writing this. How embarrassing or shameful. I'm always glad. You know, and I read things over later and they don't work. And it's deflating. It's unsettling. It's, uh, you know, sometimes panic is a feeling (laughs) that I have a lot. You know, I hate using this phrase because I feel like it's overused. But it's at the same time, it's useful. I think that's why it's overused. Like the imposter syndrome feeling of I'm not really a writer, Somebody expects me to write because I've written in the past, but that's no guarantee that I'll ever write again in a way that's worthwhile. And uh, it's all like sort of different varieties of deep uneasiness. Like there's never this feeling of like, oh, you know, wow, I can really relax and feel like I've got this all taken care of. I've figured this out. I've figured out how to build one of these things. And just next time I feel like doing it, I'm just going to go get the lumber and just put it together. I think earlier in my career, I thought that there had to be some kind of incremental gain in the ease of doing this. And when I found that that wasn't the case, I did feel like some panic and some, you know, a sense of isolation, like, do all the other writers actually know what they're doing? <laughs> and and I'm like the only one. And then, you know, the the thing that does, I think, improve, and I say this to my students as well, like, or at least the thing that's improved for me in the course of my career is like, I've realized how normal that is. <laughs> like, you know, I've been like, oh, I feel panic and unease again, this very familiar feeling. This happens like more often than it doesn't. Okay, you know, it's like it's like just a, just one of the features.
2: For Grace Paley in this interview from the eighties, the key to writing was an enhanced kind of attention.
4: I think you have uh, uh, obligations as a writer to be truthful to yourself, you know. I mean, there's no great general truth out there, you know. Mm-hmm. You have knowledge. I mean, you work, you, you don't just work from feelings, you work really from uh, information. And then you have the attention that you pay to the world. I imagine everything I am influences what I write, you know. It's, it would sure. be silly to say that. But po- possibly mostly by choice of material.
1: Material. Well, I was uh, thinking that, um, not that the story, A Conversation with My Father,
4: yeah.
1: <coughs> it's about writing. It's a great story about writing, not, not really about mm-hmm. the genders. But the narrator doesn't want to be tied to plot the way her father wants yeah. it to. And I wonder if you're interested in women's lives, which are fragmentary and are in the middle of things rather than having a beginning, middle, and ending the way men sometimes conceive every life, every plot. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that feeds into the kind of thing I'm talking about. Well, it.
4: It, re- it could, but you know, I would never really have done it on purpose. I mean,
1: yeah. <laughs> you no, know, I
4: mean, I would never have said, well, women's lives are like this. And that's the way I'm going to yes. show it, you know.
0: Writers are, I mean, I'm actually really, really reluctant to start any sentence with the word writers, because it sounds like I have figured out what they're all doing. And I can only say what I'm doing, which is that I'm always just trying to write about people in a situation. Specific people in a specific situation. I'm never, you know, like when she says, well, I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, like I would never sit down and think, women's lives are fragmentary. How shall I represent this? You know, if I'm writing about a woman, it's because like I've gotten interested in some female character who's in some sort of situation and and I'm writing about that character and trying to figure out who they are and trying to figure out what happens and how do they react to the situation that they're in and nobody i know sits down and thinks here's like an abstract issue and i'm going to try to write about it you think like here's some or at least i think here's some people in a situation i find it compelling i want to write about it well you know if i dug deeper i'd be like well why do i find it compelling and want to write about it it's probably because it embodies in a specific way some issue or some set of concerns that already I've been brooding over. But I don't think that way. I don't go from issues. I go from the characters and you know and then further when you're trying to figure out like well what are the characters like and what are they going to do that's where that experience of observation comes in that she refers to so beautifully where she talks about like well you have information you know you have your observation of the world there's things you've noticed and among those things that you've noticed are going to be probably plenty of things that could be translated into abstract statements. But, you know, your way of noticing as a writer isn't isn't going to take that path. You're going to take the path of like, who's this woman and what's her life like? You know, never like, can I make this woman a symbol of the fragmentary nature of female life? It's a lot easier to talk about the issues and the concerns that your writing explores once you've done the writing and can look at it and go, oh, <laughs> I thought I was just writing a story about you know some woman going to the bank and i didn't realize i was actually seems like kind of touching on issues of like female empowerment and patriarchy and so on and so forth but i worry about those things they bug me unsurprisingly they've found their way into my depiction of like this very specific person her articulation of her thoughts really resonates with me it makes it makes perfect sense to me i wouldn't do it on purpose but at the same time she as an observing and thinking and feeling person who tries to put all that stuff into words is going to end up infusing her characters and her stories with the things that concern her.
2: She talks about confronting this enormous field of information and being attentive to it as a writer. Is it harder to be this sort of writer in the smartphone era? Is it, this is in some ways a corny question but also a question that's always on my mind, is it, is it harder to have this kind of attention this kind of creative attention in in the internet age
0: i think it is i mean i don't know if it is if it is generally but i find it to be i find it to be very hard to sustain attention and to assemble the jittery fragments of my mind into some sort of a working whole i find it very hard I don't have any sense of certainty about like, oh, it's the internet. Like I, I, I get a little skeptical of the people who kind of make these broad pronouncements on like the way we live now, because, you know, how can they even tell? But yeah, personally, I find it very hard to think. i really hard to think these days. And that I'm sure as always is like, a product of many factors in confluence with each other that it's hard to sort out. It's like, there's whatever's going on in your personal life. There's whatever's going on in the world. There's, you know, whatever the way is that you're engaging with the world. But fragmentary attention is, I find it a very insidious thing. I don't even think we're half aware of all the ways in which our minds are kind of operating in these, in these like suboptimal
2: ways. What would be a a reading experience or a writing experience that has been salutary, that has ameliorated this kind of attention problem for you? I
0: mean, almost anything that I manage to actually read (laughs) has a very salutary effect. I really like writing for many hours at a stretch without any distraction because it takes me a while to, like, get down to it, you know, and find my way back to whatever I was thinking about and away from whatever's trying to distract me. And then once you finally get there, start having, like, some new thoughts and ideas. And that takes a while. And it's the same thing for me with reading. I'm not ever really that great at, like, picking something up reading a couple pages, putting it down, like a couple days later, maybe I have a little little more time. I really love the experience of just settling down with a book for like hours or days and uh, just having little else that's being asked of me. And, you know, in my life now, that's kind of, it's, it's like a highly artificial situation that can bring that about, like, something that I haven't done since before COVID, which is like going to a writer's colony, for example, a super privileged, you know, sort of, you know, kind of precious experience in the negative sense of precious, but it is also precious in the positive sense because for me, it's this artificial reconstruction of prior conditions where there was just less going on. I can read stuff for long stretches and kind of completely immerse myself in it and the world drops away for a while. And then you come back to the world different It takes an awfully good book to drag you away from the clamor of the world these days. Just by clamor of the world, I just mean like my email inbox. I don't even engage with social media because I just, I can barely even engage with like my own personal communication obligations successfully. So whenever I have one of those reading experiences where despite the fact that I'm like not off in some sort of solitude, the book like pulls me in it's so great because I'm like oh god this still works that that magical machine still like operates where, where you go deep into some alternate world and stop thinking about yourself and stop noticing things miss your stop on the subway
2: Susan Choi thank you so much for talking me through this
0: oh thank you it was my pleasure and it was a real treat to hear those clips I've never heard I mean, these are two writers that I love, but I've never heard their voices, and that was really very, very wonderful.
2: Thank you for listening to the Writers' Institute's podcast and Radio Hour, made possible by LitHub. And thank you to Susan Choi, author of Trust Exercise and William Kennedy, the Writers Institute founder and author of Iron Weed. And thanks to you, the listener, for following us into and out of the archives. I'm Adam Coleman, suggesting you learn more about the Writers Institute at nyswritersinstitute.org.